Hi, I'm Bruce Webb. You're listening to Push to Talks Helicopter Safety Enhancement Miniseries. In this collaboration with the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team, we're talking about four different safety enhancements over four consecutive weeks. Joining me is Chris Bauer, a former military aviator and co-chair of the USHST. In this fourth and final episode, Chris and I will take a look at HSE 127A, How to Recover from Spatial Disorientation. For more information and for a full list of helicopter safety enhancements, please visit ushst.org forward slash h dash se. I'd like to welcome Chris back to the show, Chris Bauer. This will be our fourth and final episode discussing the helicopter safety enhancements. This episode is going to concentrate on spatial disorientation, specifically training for recognition and recovery of spatial disorientation. This won't surprise any of our listeners. This is a huge concern for our industry. When we look at accidents, flight in a degraded visual environment, which often leads to spatial disorientation, is a killer. 127A is the HSE. Again, for those that have not already gone to the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team website, please go there, read the HSE in its entirety. It's very detailed. You know, this is one we we seem to grapple with still today. Perhaps we'll continue to grapple with, but I want to open the show and ask Chris. I, I know you've got a lot of instrument time. In fact, people on the show don't know. We've not discussed it, but it's probably worth discussing to give some more validity to what you your perspective, but Hughes Aerospace, that's your company. What's Hughes Aerospace do? Bruce, thanks for having me back. And thanks for introducing this HSE. It's, uh, as you said, I I think it's a cornerstone of one of the problems that plagues the helicopter industry. And I, and I answer these questions maybe wearing different hats. So yes, I'm the industry co-chair of the U.S. helicopter safety team. And we want everyone out there to be safe and not just tell you to be safe and walk away and say, all right, we did our job, but to provide you with tools like this HSE and this wonderful podcast and your generosity to make it happen. Chris Bauer, I've been a pilot for about 45 years. I have an ATP in helicopters and airplanes with, I think I have... 12 type ratings. I'm still a student. I'm still learning how to fly every time I go. And that includes instrument flight. Mm -hmm. I'm also the president of Hughes Aerospace. Outside of the FAA, we're the largest provider of instrument flight procedures. And while we provide instrument flight procedures that big airports like Chicago O'Hare and little airports, we also provide quite a few to the helicopter industry, including the air ambulance industry and heliports um, all over the country. One of the things that you could take away from this is scud running. We all learned how to do it. If you're, if you're a helicopter pilot, you learned how to scud run. Do we train it? Absolutely not. I once stood in a, on a stage and raised my hand and said, how many people here went to recurrent? How many people learned or got to experience loss of tail rotor effectiveness or loss of tail rotor thrust and did run on landings, loss of the hydraulic system? You did an auto rotation. Everybody's like, yeah, I did that. I said, how many people here got checked out on scud running? <laughs> and people looked at me horrified. Is there anybody in the FAA in the room? And I raised my hand. I said, how many people here have scud run? Yep. Nobody wants to say, That's well, the unfortunate truth, isn't it? So we don't train it. Um, it's not an authorized thing to do, yet we do it, and it kills pilots. 
and it it saddens me greatly. So if there's one thing in my life's work, when I when I went to flight school initially in the army, and I'm not biased, I'm tri service, so I did the army, the coast guard, and the air force. They're all great, even the ones I weren't did not serve in or fly <laughs> in are great. When 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 I learned how to fly in the army in flight school, they put all this emphasis on trying to get through the instrument check ride. So right away was this self-induced pressure that we're going to eliminate half your class when it comes time for the advanced instrument ride. And some guy showed up from the Fort Rucker bank and he's like, Hey, you want a car loan? You want to buy that special Corvette? He says, we got you covered, but don't come and talk to us until after you passed your advanced instrument check ride. So it just kind of undertoned, like even people in the local community know about the threat of this an instrument flying in a helicopter. So I thought maybe the best thing to do is really get out in front of this and not be a passenger, but be in command of this and learn how to fly helicopters and in the instrument environment. Mm-hmm. I did I did a stint as a UT in the Army for instruments and then uh, went on in the Coast Guard. Coast Guard was just a, all instrument flying. Air Force, obviously I fly in the airlines where every flight's IFR. And, and I fly single pilot IFR and a turboprop. So before you go further, so for the audience, and I don't know either, UT in the Army. Oh, I'm sorry, unit trainer. Okay. So you're not an IP, but you're somebody that would go out and provide instruction to somebody in a specific area. I did goggles and I did uh, instruments. When I say I'm a student, I, I have yet to go out and fly any day, any time, and not come away with something that I thought I understood that I now understand maybe a little bit better or that I make a mistake um, and learn from that mistake. And, and a mistake is just a simple thing. It's like I heard the frequency wrong and I dialed the wrong frequency and I got to go back to the last one. Mm-hmm. It could be something more significant, like you didn't put in the right procedure that you were going to fly. It could be that you put the wrong altitude in because you didn't double check it. So you got to, if you're going to fly by yourself, you really need to be your own little QA team. But Hughes, we produce these instrument procedures, and in doing so, instead of scud running, pilots could fly a copter LPV approach. They could fly a copter departure. They can get on a ZK route, which is something we incubated with the FAA, which is a low-altitude copter airway that uses WAS. So you have this whole ecosystem. And while pilots are flying these procedures, they're safe. It's a deliberative process. You could be a new pilot. You could be a seasoned pilot. But the process is always going to be the same. You're going to fly the approach. You're going to go, if you didn't break out, missed approach. And you're going to go into a holding pattern. Or you're going to get vectors or another clearance to go someplace else and do something else. But the safe outcome of the flight was never in question because you were flying over terpsed surfaces. And you were safe because you weren't flying down a road looking to try to stay VMC in IFR conditions and running into something that you didn't see and with a catastrophic result. You've certainly covered the entirety of this. I would say most helicopter pilots, now again, I only fly helicopters. Uh, I don't have any airplane ratings. For me to fly IFR, IMC in a helicopter when, when I'm current and competent is, uh, I will even say, enjoyable and much more relaxing than trying to fly VFR in marginal VMC conditions. Heavens, yes. Flying VFR in VFR conditions is very pleasurable and not difficult. But I will say, I will admit for me, 
the great difficulty lies in departing VFR in VMC conditions and then really needing to transition to IFR in marginal VMC or IMC conditions. It's that it's almost a paradigm shift in how I think that I must do while in flight if I'm in that condition. In other words, if I fly and I go from what I believe to be a VFR flight into an IFR flight, even if I'm in an IFR-capable aircraft and I happen to be current and competent, then I almost have to flip a switch. I almost have to change how I'm looking at things. I believe, when I think back to a long time prior to me being an instrument-rated pilot, You know, those first moments of being in IMC conditions, and let's call it what they are. You know, when you're flying around in, you know, 300 and a half, I don't care if the regs say that's VFR or not, it's below the approach minima for virtually every non-precision approach in the country. So it's really not VMC. You can call it that. That's a struggle. That's tough. And, you know, it's not difficult to step over that line to be in a degraded visual environment. You're already in a degraded visual environment. And, you know, it doesn't take much to cause your vestibular system to start to feed your brain information that doesn't correlate with your eyes. So let's call that an undesired aircraft state. That's the overarching theme. At least if you're going to invite me to a podcast, I'm going to say all of these things collectively put the aircraft into a UAS or undesired aircraft state. You're not at 100% anymore. Mm -hmm. You're either barely hanging on or the aircraft is doing things that you don't want it to be doing. You may not even know. Exactly. You know where I'm going. It's subliminal. And I've been there. And you start flying slower. You start flying lower, lower, slower, lower, slower, trying to maintain control. But what you're not cognizant of is how low are you where are the, your obstacles and obstructions? Mm-hmm. So remember before, we in a previous HSE podcast, we talked about being a test pilot. Well, now you're being a test pilot because you're not flying over a turp surface. You're not really VMC. Right. But the aircraft's still moving forward and you're still sitting in it. And it, it, you'll either get lucky and you won't hit anything or you will not be lucky and you will hit something. Mm-hmm. Or you'll wind up damaging the aircraft in some way, shape or form. But the one thing you said earlier, I'm going to go back to, how comfortable is this? No, it's horrible. You remember when you'd, you'd come back from flying something like that? If you wore a helmet, you, you'd take it off and your hair's like standing <laughs> up and there's like sweat and grease on your face where you've just been through the ringer and you've got these rings around your ears and you're, you just, you got that 50 yard stare in your eyes like, I'm worn out. This, this was a lot. Do I really want to go out and do this again? And then you think about a proficient instrument pilot who's up at altitude. Comes out yawning. (laughs) Maybe, maybe enjoying a cup of coffee or something out of the, out of a thermos or, or having, you know, a snack and verifying their position, moving along their route of flight, monitoring the weather where they're going. They've got a plan. It's methodical. And they're, they're, they're a hundred miles out in front of their own aircraft where the other guy was 100 miles behind it, barely hanging on. And when the other pilot lands, who's IFR, their face their, their face isn't melting. They're mm-hmm. not worn out from that right. experience. It's a very manageable workload because it's deliberate. And I think that is the key. It's deliberate. You're in an environment that you have per- 
have prepared for. If, if there are unexpected things, they're minor. It's certainly not that you've allowed yourself to get squeezed down between, you know, a cloud deck at 300 feet and the surface. I, I will ask people sometimes, I say this tongue in cheek, but if you ask someone who's only flown big aircraft, that's all they've ever flown. And you ask them to describe 1,000 feet AGL. I think what you're going to hear is, ooh, that's pretty low. There's a lot of stuff down there I don't like. Antennas, birds, drones, other aircraft. I mean, there's a ton of stuff down there. But if you'd ask a helicopter pilot, tell me about 1,000 feet AGL, many, I think we're getting better, but many would say, ooh, I never go that high. I never go up there. And the reality is, other than in a few cases, being on fire and having a horrible vibration that you can't control, altitude's your friend. Climb to an altitude where you're not likely to strike an object, where you have positive control, where you have people helping you, where you know you're in an environment that's turped out and you're not going to bump into something. That's a whole lot more manageable than trying to pick your way through something Quite honestly, any of us, perhaps all of us that are listening, if you've been flying for long, have to admit to ourselves we have been fortunate that when we did Scud Run, whenever it was, whether it was 40 years ago. Is there a statute of limitations on this? I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. I'm not even ashamed of it. Perhaps I should be ashamed of it. That's how I was trained. No one, I don't really think, Chris, when I look back on my career, I would say the first five years of my career, I probably never got above five or 600 feet AGL. I didn't even know you flew up there. I learned to fly in the Chicago area. We kept everything low to the ground. You know, we were under the TCA, class B, and that's just what we did. That's what, that's what every instructor taught me to do. That's what all the peer, my peers did. That's what I thought we did. And it wasn't until I started flying IFR, I realized, you know what? You don't have to drive around that low. Some work obviously requires it. You're not going to do external load work flying around at a few thousand feet above the ground. You're not going to do crop dusting or spraying. You're not a lot of work. You're not going to do the work. Photography. Photography. A lot of the work you did with CBP or with customs or surveillances, surveillances. but there's a lot of work you can be at altitude, or you certainly not to be that low. When we say degraded visual environment, most of us, including me, we often think about a dark and stormy night, you know, 300 and a half, raining, drizzle. But it doesn't have to be that. There's a, some pretty famous accidents up in Alaska, probably 25 years ago, where three aircraft actually landed on top of a glacier. Uh, One after another, uh, I say landed, I should say crashed. Fortunately, no one killed. They were flying in a condition where the horizon was completely obfuscated. You know, they were in a essentially a flat light condition, a whiteout condition. They they couldn't tell up from down, right from left. And that's in a degraded visual environment. They weren't quote unquote IMC because of weather, but they were in an environment you couldn't operate the helicopter safely. And that's that's a very interesting concept that may escape some folks. You know, we just had a uh, USHST webinar and um, I chimed in and showed a picture of me flying at night over West Virginia. And I was out there doing um, 
flight inspection on some copter procedures that we had built. I was en route, you know, transiting. So uh, I was high enough that I was above the highest obstacle. But in the picture that I took, you just see there's no horizon. It was a moonless night. You're basically IFR in a way. Legally, I was not because it was VFR conditions, but there was no real horizon. And now go offshore. Exactly. So there's no ground cover below you that you don't know. And then people can get confused between starlights. Mm -hmm. There was uh, an Airbus helicopter incident where it was an aeromedical guy was taken off. He thought this light above him was a stadium light from where he was doing his extraction. And it was the moon. Mm -hmm. And he tried to outfly the, get around the light that kept moving. Yep. That was Denver Pletcher. And we did a video about that. We did I know. I, I, I really enjoyed watching that. Yeah. And that's just, you know, when someone shares those type of experiences, yeah, um, it saves so many other people from going down that same path. You know, there's so much in that. We, we don't have time on this podcast to cover all of that. But I would encourage you to go watch the video. It's called That Others May Live. And it's about Denver Pletcher. And, yes, he was a, an Air Force instrument-rated helicopter pilot. He had a fair bit of instrument time. But he got into a condition where he was in a degraded visual environment, and then he became spatially disoriented. The reality is, well, let me even back up further. The reason we know about it is because the operator contacted us because it had an Apario system, a telemetry system aboard the aircraft with a camera. And when they looked at the telemetry, they wanted us to let them know if the aircraft needed any maintenance or if this airframe had been stressed because of all the unusual attitudes it was placed in. It actually did two complete tail slides from altitude. I mean, did like a pirouette and then slid back down. It did it twice. Kudos to Denver for being honest enough to tell the story. It's not one most people would want to tell. He was certainly capable of flying IFR. In fact, you know, kind of the rest of the story is uh, I happen to know the check pilot that gave him his uh, return to service. They, so they took him off the line. They gave him remedial ground school. They gave him uh, additional training, and he took a check ride again. And the pilot said he was fine. Everyone said he was good, good pilot. But again, there's a difference between planning to go IFR and, and finding yourself encountering it. It's subliminal. Yes. And IFR can be very subliminal, particularly on goggles where – you may not really perceive the transition into IMC conditions. And unfortunately, again, as, we, as I said at the beginning of this, it is a killer. So we look at aircraft flying at low altitude. We look at loss of control. And we look at degraded visual environment. Well, you're at low altitude because unless you're spraying or you're you know, really doing aerial photography that low or you're doing power line patrol, the reason you're that low typically is You've been forced down by the weather. A lot of the degraded visual environment accidents are really part and parcel of the loss of control. If you're in a degraded visual environment, ultimately you lose control and you're at low altitude when you lose control. We wouldn't have this problem at all if we said, listen, helicopters to be VFR, you have to, you can't fly below a thousand feet AGL. No, we wouldn't have these problems because as soon as they got down to, let's say, 900 feet, they'd be like, well, I got to land because I can't be here. And they'd have plenty of altitude to work with to find a safe place to land. But when you look for a safe place to land and you're flying in 300 and a half. At 70 knots and half a mile of visibility, what is it you really think you could see? Yeah, not not nearly enough. And 
just know that all visibility that we see that's reported is surface visibility at these airports. It's not flight visibility at the airport unless you have a PIREP. It's surface visibility. So in most cases, as you ascend, the visibility doesn't get better, it gets worse. So the field may have a visibility reported at one mile. That doesn't mean at 500 feet above the ground you can see a mile. You may not be able to see a quarter mile. I don't know. That's a good segue into maybe just a mention of the FAA's weather camera system. This is, I think, one of the greatest tools that's available to us. And while the nexus of the program is Alaska, the applicability is anywhere. It doesn't have to be Alaska. And the USHST is advocating that the FAA provide the same camera network to the lower 48. Fantastic initiative. Because what is 400 feet or 500 feet? You've been flying your whole life. I've been flying my whole life. If we got 100 aviators here that have been flying their whole lives and we took it doesn't matter the aircraft, and we fly it over at 2,000 feet, we incrementally bring it down and lower and lower and lower. What percent of those pilots are going to within some, yeah, I can tell you 500 feet from 1,000. Can I really, looking out at an aircraft flying across the sky, let's say at 500 feet, a half a mile off my nose, can I really tell they're at 500 or 300? No, not repeatedly. And, And what's reporting this is a machine with a laser, that's giving you the salometer, and then you have the tremisiometer that looks at the the visibility. When was the last time it was calibrated? When you know, maybe over that part of the airport where it's at, it could be clear, and the other part of the airport could be socked in. You know, when we look at visibility, the surface visibility is the visibility as reported over fifty one percent of the horizon on the surface. So imagine on the surface the visibility from Zero, zero, or 360, all the way down to 182, technically, is 20 miles. But from 183 to 359, it's zero. The visibility is 20 miles. That's a fact. It's ridiculous, but it's a fact. Because you're dealing with machines. And this is, again, where we'll go back to the camera. If we have guests that are listening and they haven't checked out the FAA's weather camera system, just put it in the search bar. It'll come up. Um, take a look at it because I, I would want you to look at these camera images yeah. and if you can see, and you could also roll it back and look at the trend mm-hmm. where you could see what the trend is over the last three, five, six hours, whatever right. your fancy is, what you'll notice is, is the weather improving or is it degrading? Mm-hmm. Look at the image that may show a windsock a runway or some other um, feature and put yourself now in the helicopter in that environment, and tell me what you think. Is right. this really what you want to be doing? Absolutely. Or is it better not to? Because a picture does tell a thousand words. And we've all experienced this. We've all flown in a field where the ceiling was reported to be a thousand and three. I'm just going to use that number, a thousand and three. Well, there's been days I've been out at a thousand and three, and I'm like, oh, it's a pretty good day. And other days I'm like, wow, this is not great. To be able to see what the ceiling of visibility really is, to be able to Look at that image. And I think Alaska has been a great test bed for that. I think every person that flies up there raves about that camera system. should be placed everywhere. Do you know it's reduced accidents by the FAA's own metrics? 85%. Could you imagine if you had money to invest? If you could put your money in an asset that would provide an 85% return 
mm-hmm. on that investment. You would think that. Oh, it's fantastic. Of course. We need to carpet bomb <laughs> right. the world with these cameras right. and get them in the hands of the pilots. We're actually working at Hughes to, to, to put that into an app form where you don't have to go to the website to be able to pull up those images along your route of flight. I can't say enough good things about the idea of just don't look at the numbers. Look at the images. Like Bruce said, you know, an image is worth a thousand words. And maybe if you can in, in use the latency feature of it where you loop it back, where it's more of a moving image, mm-hmm. a moving image is probably worth a million words. Yep. Because you could see it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Right. I have a friend. In fact, we've invited him to be on the podcast. I think he will be in the next couple of months. His name is Dr. Marcus Bauer. He's a German gentleman. He worked for Airbus for many years. He has his own business now. He is stunningly brilliant and has developed systems, camera systems, to be put on airports to detect other aircraft flying. It will detect objects on the runway. It'll tell you, you know, it could be animals. It could be vehicles. It could be people. It could be anything. It's so camera technology and computer power is such has evolved so quickly that today we can have much better information. But to your point on a conversation we had a week or two ago, you know, more information is not always better unless it is easy to access and easy to understand. And that's where photos, this this camera system you're talking about, you don't really have to look at the picture and say, well, is that two miles or is that three? You can look at it and go, ooh, yeah, I'm not flying in At that. this point, I don't care. Right. I just know that this isn't something I want to do. Absolutely. Or on the, on the flip side of it, it could confirm that this is safe. Absolutely. That this is something I can do. And I feel better now about my flight and, and planning this out and what to expect. Mm-hmm. Right. What, what the other thing that they have is they don't always put the cameras, say, at an airport, which again is to me is kind of biased. They should be at heliports, not just airports. Sure. But also, if you can put them along um, mountain passes, because that's another area where you struggle, where you're planning a flight, you know, and you're in, like my case, I was leaving Martinsburg and I was going to um, Greenville and I got to go across a bunch of ridges. But there's no weather reporting, so you're kind of left up to your own. You're going to pull up a AWOS at this airport or an ASOS over here, and then in your mind, you're trying to interpolate, you know, what the temperature dew point spread is and what the cloud might look like, and, and, and turbulence or any other factor that goes into your flight planning. It's tricky. Yep. But if you had that camera, yep, well, well you'd I have think, a better idea. Sure, I think one day, and this is Bruce's perspective of what may happen in the future, not Airbuses or anyone else's, just mine. With the technology we have even today, many of our aircraft now have camera systems on board the aircraft that are filming. You know, we film looking up at the clamshell doors in flight, or maybe we're looking from the vertical fin forward in flight. Imagine you take that image and you link it to ADS-B and it's just continually broadcast out. And again, that's not going to happen today, and, and there may be legal reasons that never happens. But just imagine it would be a continuous pilot report, a PIREP, from every aircraft equipped with camera systems flying around. Then we don't have the difficulty of saying, well, yeah, that's surface or not surface. It is in flight. In flight. So I can look at the image and say, yeah, wow, you know, at 1,000 feet over Grand Prairie, it's not as good as the METAR made Dallas or the TAF is, has predicted. 
we know that our our visual system provides us most of our ability to align ourselves in space. So that's what we're visual creatures. Our vestibular system is fantastic. And it, it's about what 15 or 20% of our ability to orient ourselves in space is from our vestibular system. But as, as pilots, that's sometimes not a great thing because then we have this uh, contradiction between what our eyes are telling us exists and what our ears or our vestibular system tells us exists. And then we have this miscompare. It's almost like having an AHARS miscompare, except for we don't have a tertiary system as a comparator to tell us when one's bad, right? We Well, the, yeah, this is where helicopter pilots often get hurt. From our inception, we're taught to fly the the aircraft by the, the all these different senses absolutely and when you go to fly ifr you got to set that aside you have to shut those senses off and that's a lot of the success that a, a helicopter pilot may or may not have in transitioning initially to instruments is the ability to shut down the receptors that are giving you bad data mm-hmm. and relying on what you're seeing in your instruments relying on the instruments mm-hmm to keeping yourself out of a undesired aircraft state. Right. Yeah, I love that tough, term. That is tough to do. You you know the law of primacy, the first thing you learn is is pretty much impossible to undo. Not impossible in that you can't learn something new, but if you're told if you feel the aircraft sliding sideways, react to that. You feel the yaw, you need to react to that. But you know as well as I do, and you get in turbulence in an IMC condition on the instruments, you have to rely on those instruments that they're giving you good data. And and they will. I mean, if you think about it, in our industry, how many crashes have occurred because the flight instruments failed in flight? It's, I can't it's even, a small, it's I can't such even a small think of number, one. Me either. Me it either. doesn't come to mind. And and if the aircraft's certified, it it has backup instruments. It's not Yep. a sole source it, it has to have a backup gyro that's good for at least 30 minutes on its own power so mm-hmm. if you lost a complete electrical system mm-hmm. you can keep the aircraft wings right. level and then when you fly imc how much of that time is really so hard imc that you're not really you're in and out of the clouds you're not sure. in this solid layer forever right it doesn't work that way so to that point pilots need to go out fly in the weather acclimate themselves to it, learn how to, you can say, flip the switch or figure out which senses I'm going to use as a mm-hmm. pilot. You know, when I, when I flew in the, in the air force, we would fly behind HMX one and we would do this on goggles. We would go IFR. V, we would transition between being IMC and VMC and on goggles all at once. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a big deal. Why? Cause we did it. We were good at it. We practiced. We rehearsed it. Um, And your body knew how to respond. And your mind is a wonderful thing. It figures out with training, with repetitive, effective training, you learned to set aside what your vestibular system may be telling you, which is inappropriate, and follow what the instruments are telling you. If you're not going to be competent IMC, flying IFR, you cannot expect that when you're placed in that condition, you're going to be able to successfully ignore that seat of the pants feeling, those the, 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 the response you're going to get from your vestibular system, and 
follow the instruments. It's, it's fascinating to me. People say, well, just follow the instruments as if that's just, well, just do that. That's incredibly difficult to do when you've spent decades using your vestibular system in conjunction with your eyes, looking at the surface to fly, not those instruments. And if they go to the HSCs, they can read about the oculo, <laughs> oculogravatic. Easy so, for you to say. <laughs> I know. It's almost like interference. It's like somebody jamming your head. Absolutely. You're getting all these signals and your brain's trying to process them. Yep. And the brain isn't looking at what the eyes is presenting as much as, well, I've been... So I wouldn't say it's a competency as much as it is something that you've rehearsed and you're comfortable with. So there's some curiosity in your experiences. Mm -hmm. And the more from the, 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 the more it becomes a repetitive task, the, the more your body will quickly adapt to doing it. I would liken it to, have you ever driven a stick shift? Oh, yeah. Oh, we're old. That's yeah. why. Okay. We're old. Yeah. <laughs> I have a son. Sammy, and, and he's uh, 17, and he has, I bought him a, a 1989 Toyota pickup with a five-speed. Best anti-theft device in the world, because <laughs> who's going to steal that truck? Right. He would not have drive it. And he had to learn how to drive that five-speed. And it took him a while, and he really stressed about it. And I liken it to the instrument. I'm, I'm afraid of it. I don't like it. It's something new. It's not what I've been doing. If I didn't have this stick, this clutch, and all these things, and I watched... The, his muscles and I watched his legs shaking while he was so tense. Mm -hmm. And now, and I was going to say, if you've driven a stick shift, do you think about shifting gears when you're oh, driving never. your car yeah, yeah. going from one place to another? Never, never. And again, so I was fortunate. And so my children will probably listen to this podcast. They're adults now. They're 30 and 32. So again, I grew up on a farm. So, I mean, the last pickup we had with three in the tree yeah, was a 72 Chevy C10. It had three in the tree. But then all of our straight trucks, you know, were four-speed or six-speed with a split rear end, right? You had a two-speed rear end. And then, all, of course, all tractors were in my motorcycles. Anyway, all to say that when my daughters learned to drive, I insisted they learn to drive a manual first. So my children, there were a lot of tears shed, but I insisted they learn to fly, drive stick shifts. So we had an FJ Cruiser at the time, to your point. We did ground school so they could understand how the system worked, how the trans, how the clutch works. Then we go out and we practice. And some days were gold, some days were coal. Just like flying IFR, once they gained the confidence to do it, that gave them confidence to be better drivers, period. Not just better manual transmission drivers, but better drivers, period. And I think IFR training does that. I think if you're a very competent instrument pilot, I would pose that your VFR skills are refined and better as well. Because you're learning to manage more of the situation and you're going to have a better scan and you're going to have a better interpretation. But my end state of the, of the manual transmission story was simply that once you've mastered it and you're comfortable with it, you do it subconsciously. You don't need to think, oh, I'm going to go in the clouds now. I got to do this or I got to do that. Your, your mind's already mapped to it. It knows exactly what the correct mm -hmm. response will be. And it, you don't think about it anymore. You just execute. Yep. And it yep. doesn't mean you're, you're, you're not engaged at all. It just means it's less workload. It's less sure. stress for you. So we need to, you know, I asked, I was at a, actually it was a U.S. helicopter safety team meeting, I believe. I believe it was U.S. helicopter safety team. But it was at Heli Expo. 
we were discussing perhaps this HSE. And I said, uh, how many helicopters flew into Heli Expo on an IFR flight plan? And of course, everyone's like, I don't know. I'm like, I pose none. Certainly none came in IMC, but probably none on an IFR flight plan. And I didn't have evidence for that. But, you know, I believe that's true. I said, how many fixed-wing aircraft flew into NBAA not on an IFR flight plan? I say virtually none. Because fixed-wing file and fly IFR all the time, it becomes routine. Unfortunately, in the helicopter world, too many people file and fly only when they must. And that's not what you want to do. It's just like using an autopilot, and we're going to come to that. But an autopilot, an automatic flight control system, so critical to helping save lives in this environment. I really do believe an autopilot can help save lives in a degraded visual environment. But the key is you have to be comfortable and capable to use it effectively, repeatedly, without thought, to your point. You cannot not use your autopilot until the moment you need it and then expect that you're going to use it effectively. You have to use the autopilot when you don't need it. You have to learn to be comfortable with it. You have to go on a flight. Maybe one leg of the flight, you let the autopilot fly. The next leg, you hand fly. I don't know, but you need to become familiar with its use. Because it becomes another part of the crew. So there's something called VVM, Verbalize, Verify, Monitor. If you're going to work with the automation, and this is where people get in trouble with automation, is they don't verbalize, verify, and monitor. One of the worst things that some of the OEMs do is they put lights on a button you push. So some pilots, they don't look at the flight mode enunciation or whatever. They just look at the button. They tap the button. They think they engaged a mode, maybe like altitude hold, or maybe it's nav, not heading, and they or they forget which mode they're in, and they're not looking at the flight mode enunciator. And I don't care what aircraft you fly. If it has the automation, it's got a flight mode enunciator. So it's more than just pushing the button. So you have to learn to verbalize, verify, and monitor. Monitor, a great analogy a pilot shared with me is, it's like going through the drive through Before you drive away, you open the bag and make sure what you ordered is what's in the there bag. There you go. That's so you perfect. Can, you could push the button but verify that you got what you ordered and then monitor it to make sure that that mode doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to take it out of that mode, even if you're flying by yourself, enunciate to yourself, I'm not in the, I'm, I'm leaving that mode. So mm -hmm. it's a threat. Mm -hmm. I've introduced a threat of, let's say. Not coupled to that any longer. So there's the, the workload that the autopilot alleviates, alleviates for you. But then you have to, as you're stating, manage it effectively as a tool that's going to help you not put the aircraft into an undesired aircraft state because it's in a mode that you didn't either intend for it to be in or you forgot. And what's or, interesting- Or you don't understand. You know, there's a lot of modes on these autopilots, these sophisticated autopilots, that if you don't understand it, fly up is a good example. How it captures altitude, you know, it'll initially capture with using the rad out, the radar altimeter. But then after a time, it goes back to barrow, barometric. Mm, you better know that. Otherwise, rising terrain can be a problem. They're not perfect. Right. And there's different types. Some are two axis. Some are three axis. Some are fourth axis where you have collective management. In the two axis autopilot, when it captures a vertical path, it's going to pitch the nose over. You better pull some power out or you're going to be going way too fast, right? But if you know it's coming... Because you've practiced and you've rehearsed it, 
then it's an asset to you. Otherwise, you may find yourself in an undesired aircraft state where you're doing like 150 knots, uh, screaming towards the ground, and you may not realize it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody or talk anybody in or out of anything. The autopilots today, compared to when we started flying, most helicopters didn't have an autopilot. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was a real rarity. Mm -hmm. And the ones even in the fixed-wing world weren't very good. Mm -hmm. Today, modern autopilot, though, it's all digital. Um, how often do they fail? Certainly, you should know how to fly if it doesn't work, but the failure rate is pretty low. Yeah. They're, they're very dependable pieces of equipment. And when you're in a digital architecture, and let's think about that for a minute. We learned to fly in a paper analog world. Instruments failed all the time. You know, I, I'm not to contradict myself, but I mean, when I oh. say instruments would fail all the time, you know, the attitude indicators didn't fail that much, but you had all kinds of radio failures. and Right. Um, Especially in helicopters where vibration levels were high, you know, in the old aircraft. And yeah, the, the, the radios weren't designed for that. The equipment no, wasn't designed. No, they were fixed-wing stuff shoved into a, a helicopter, sure. and they did have some issues. Mm -hmm. in, in modern digital architecture... The likelihood of having a radio failures, very low. The the instruments failing where you don't have a horizon or you don't have a, a, an RMI, compass or whatever, remote. The likelihood of the autopilot failing is going to be remote. Then the other part of the digital architecture is the electronic flight bag. So you've got all of this digital technology at your fingertips that's going to help you look at weather mm -hmm. that's going to help you look at notams remember notams you'd have to read off of a printout you know i remember be, well right you could hang it up on the wall i mean right <laughs> now you could go into most contemporary efbs pull up an approach and it'll tell you and hey, it'll graphically depict areas too not you know 30 southwest of you know eubank and 10 north of blah blah, blah. i mean you had to sit down with a straight edge and a pencil to draw out everything to figure out where the bad places were, where the weather was. We can give all of this, this digital architecture to the pilots, but ultimately the pilots have to avail themselves of it and they have to use it with some level of curiosity that they, they're not all of a sudden finding themselves in weather going, okay, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Where, where do I find that? Mm -hmm. Well, we'll see that when you, if you train people in simulators, you can fly in a simulator and not everyone, but there are people that fly, you'll be training a simulator and they'll be using the autopilot. And then if you continue to bring the ceiling down and the visibility down, they'll slow down and go lower and slow down and go lower and slow down and go lower. It's fascinating. And then you get them low enough and slow enough where really they should be climbing using the autopilot. They'll decouple. They'll hand fly because that's what they're comfortable with. That's the law of primacy. They went back there to what they go. knew and what right. they learned the first time. Which is why, statistically, you know, again, Lee Roskop and a lot of people did a lot of math to calculate and to come to this 56 seconds. But statistically, over the 10-year period studied, yeah, pilots and helicopters last about 56 seconds when they go inadvertent IMC. That's a terrifying short period of time where, you know, we, we can do better. The technology exists to allow us to do better, but we have to take the time to train to use it. 
we have to be willing to accept that there are additional costs. Let's say you and I go fly right now and we're going to fly to Houston. It's VFR out. But you know what? On this leg, perhaps we should go ahead and file and fly IFR to go down there. And instead of taking us, whatever, two hours to get down there, it's going to take us two and a half because we're going to do the instrument departure out of here. But it's going to take us longer. Let's just say it takes us 30 minutes longer on a two-hour flight. That would be egregious. But let's just imagine that. There's a cost. And the benefit is it gives us knowledge, experience, comfort, curiosity. The law of recency. So you're, you are work in the system. Absolutely. You're going to be a little bit more fluent on the radios. Right. You're going to be a little bit more fluent in your button pushing. Right. To understand what's coming next. What am I setting up for? And even if you're by yourself, you're going to look at the approach. You're going to brief yourself. What are your minimums? You know, a lot of architecture allows you to set the minimums. So you get a heads up when you're approaching minimums. So you'll get some enunciations for that. If you really IFR, I think about, well, what happens when I get on the ground? Where am I going next? Because I don't want to run into something. So you could you could do a great job of getting yourself there. But then we were talking earlier about dynamic rollover. You know, you could get into something because you run into something on the airport. Absolutely. Repositioning the aircraft. Absolutely. You know, the flight's not over until the blades are tied down and the book is filled out. And, you know, I'm, wa- I'm walking back to the hotel. There are a lot of times bad things happen where people relax and think, well, the flight's over. You know, I've shot the approach. I, I broke out at 250 feet above the runway, right? Blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I didn't put the wheels down. Or I put the wheels down, but I left the parking brake on. And when I rolled it to touchdown, I made Ooh, Fred tired. Flintstone wheels out of it. That's right. I mean, there's a lot of cases where those things happen. So it goes back to training. VVM, is that VVM? Verbalize, verify, verify monitor. monitor. Yeah, I think that in undesired aircraft state, I think I won't forget that. That is a perfect way to describe what happens when we become trapped in this degraded visual environment. And trapped because, quite honestly, in many cases, we're unwilling to land and live and we're incapable or unwilling to go IMC. We can't have, but we got to choose. We, you know, you can't discontinue to fly. So here's the overarching moniker I'll throw out there towards the end of our, our podcast. If the safe outcome of a flight is ever in question, you're not doing it right. So once you've departed from the safe outcome of the flight, so what does the safe outcome of the flight mean? It may mean different things to our listeners. To me, the safe outcome of the flight means I could take my family and put them in your aircraft, turn my back, and walk away without a second thought. Because I know the safe outcome of the flight is going to be a positive one. If you're out flying and you've deviated from that, then what you need to work towards is getting the aircraft back into a desired aircraft state where the safe outcome of the flight is not in question. To me, the safe outcome of the flight means if you have to land short of your destination because it's not safe to continue, that's a safe outcome. Absolutely. We don't or always turn around get and come what back. we want. We don't always get what we want, right? When we leave here today and, and I drive home or you drive to the hotel or what happened? I'm going to Bucky's. I told you that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Google that, folks. It's a, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a Texas, Texas tradition. Icon. That's right. It certainly is. Yeah, things happen that we don't desire, we don't expect, but we cope with. I don't think there's a better way to end the show than those those words. That's fantastic, Chris. I I couldn't be happier 
that we chose to do this special segment with you, the with the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team. I hope that the listeners have enjoyed the four episodes. I've enjoyed seeing you. I look forward to doing more of this one day. Maybe it'll be podcasting. Maybe it'll be videos. Maybe it'll be both. I don't know. Truly, thank you. I think this it's been enlightening for me, for sure. Thank you, Bruce and Airbus. And thank you to all the volunteers in the U.S. helicopter safety team that put a lot of time and effort into this and our partners at HAI. Yes, indeed. So until next time, resume own navigation. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.